0: The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and losses may be made.
1: Tom, over the last two years, um, 90% of the global economy has committed to net zero, including, of course, 91. Now, this has come, among other reasons, from the rapid realisation that finance and the private sector is going to be the key lever for change in the fight against the climate crisis. Without finance, we're not going to move the needle. Now, the vision is clear, the ambition is clear, but the path to getting there is less so. Yeah. We know we need to fund future economies that are premised on low carbon infrastructure and energy. We know that today we need to scale up green energy, we need to scale up sustainable infrastructure, but we also know that we can't just deal with the solutions. We have to deal with the problem So, we have to go to where the carbon is. We have to finance the high emitting sectors and the high emitting regions from a state of high carbon to one of low carbon. So, the path to getting there, not simple, not linear, definitely complex and probably messy. Yeah. How do we ensure that the path to net zero? is not a disorderly one? And do you foresee over the short to medium term this being an option?
0: I I think the first thing that we all have to grapple with or, or get comfortable with is the realization or the understanding that this is almost inevitably going to be disorderly. The question is how disorderly and what can we as investors and asset owners and, and and people who can put pressure on companies and to some degree on sovereigns and regulators, what can we do to minimize the disorderly impacts or disorderly nature of it um, and try and um, keep the transition on the rails, if you like? and. There are a number of kind of scenarios out there. Um, Lots of different organizations have published their own. Um, We have found that the NGFS, the network for greening the financial system, and their six scenarios uh, which sit within four quadrants. So they have orderly, disorderly, um, hothouse world, too little, too late, I think are the four categorizations. Mm -hmm. And the two scenarios within the disorderly quadrant there are are really interesting and really thought-provoking. But broadly speaking, you have, if you like, physical risks, or we we are all experiencing physical risks, whether they're in our day-to-day lives, depending on where we live in the world, or whether they're terrible things that we're reading and hearing and uh, learning about. Um, and then we have transition risks. And at the moment, the physical risks are manifesting themselves quite visibly and in quite a prevalent way. Transition risks, at the moment, really not so much. Um, were we to see significant policy intervention, regulatory change, consumer change, etc., etc., then we would hypothetically see a heightened level of transition risk, um, and hopefully a lessening uh, based on the Temperature impacts a lessening of the physical. So that's the trade-off.
1: So you mentioned at the beginning saying, you know, where we sit and the influence that we can have. Mm. And I mentioned 90% of that global economy is now committed. Um, And I think we know that everybody within the system has a sort of role and responsibility to play and sort of sort of seeking that vision, right? So everyone from the policymakers down to the implementers and the companies on the ground, they all have a role to play. Zoom into us, where we sit. Asset owners, investors, companies, what are the roles and responsibilities on the journey to net zero?
0: So it's about understanding, calibrating, judging, and pressurizing Mm -hmm. around the transition plan and this is a a relatively new concept for many of us in the investment industry because it's really since the Paris climate agreement at the end of 2015 that we have all become somewhat fixated on this transition this move to a lower carbon global economic model.
1: So Transition finance. Let's zoom in on that for a second. What is transition finance?
0: I think the first thing I would say in response to that is that the concept of transition finance and the rising importance of transition finance should not be seen as to the detriment or exclusion of other forms of sustainable or ESG investing. So this does not mean, and I'll come on in a moment and, and put a bit more flesh on, on the bones of what we interpret transition finance to be, but this does not mean that climate solutions and green bonds and other forms of um, existing sustainable finance suddenly become marginalized or, or reduced in importance. But in a nutshell, the, the, the concept here is that we need to invest and allocate and spend our time where the problem is, rather than marginalizing the problem and going low carbon and avoiding sectors and geographies that have got an emissions problem. So that is the starting point. However, and this is the really important bit, this is not open season on you know transi- tr- transition finance means you can just go out and indiscriminately buy a heavy-emitting company or you know, allocate to countries where there are heavy emissions, um, because you know that you're doing the right thing, because that's where the emissions are. Mm-hmm. So you have to have a very clear framework for doing it. You have to focus on the transition plan and and do a really rigorous and detailed study of that. And of course, y- you have to have, as in a sense, as a as a guiding light, as a north star, the 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 notion of reducing or avoiding carbon and so that's typically as it were a big emitting company that's got a clear plan to bring its emissions down or perhaps a company with a technological edge or technological development or evolution that will enable other companies and other industries to reduce their emissions.
1: Run me through what a disorderly transition looks like for a company like Semex.
0: Yeah so Semex is a is an intriguing example because of the structure of the cement industry and the cu- and the country in which it sits. Um, so the challenge for the cement industry and for CEMEX is to develop a low carbon or green way of producing cement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not a cement expert, but what I've understood is that it's the clinker which is the binding agent uh, within the cement making process is the really, really emissions intensive part, uh, because you have to use a furnace that goes up to 1500 degrees. And, and so we are in the, I say we, CEMEX and their partners are in the early stages of developing a green clinker solution, which if, if, you know, we are to sort of follow the logic should be a very, very major development in decarbonizing or reducing the emissions from the uh, cement making process. So in a sense, a disorderly transition for the cement industry would be one in which effectively capital is withdrawn from the cement industry because people say that it's very emissions intensive and it's withdrawn before the green alternative is ready and scalable to make up the shortfall. And what we would reasonably expect to happen in that outcome would be that the global price of cement and of construction and infrastructure generally would skyrocket, Mm -hmm. and we'd have a big, big socioeconomic problem. And the opposite or the other outcome is that, or would be that, SEMEX and partners and other participants in the cement industry would be given adequate time and capital and investor support to develop the green clinker and the kind of renewable or, or low carbon alternative to conventional cement. And that by the time that that was ready and scalable and globally marketable, mm-hmm. then then and only then would they reduce their production of the uh, high emissions, high carbon, existing form,
1: and it would be done so in a sort of substitutive way. Yes, right. I mean, obviously, things are driven by markets, mm. and you know, and we can get onto the energy crisis in a second. But there are certain things you cannot not account for. But if you can account kilogram for kilogram of cement, yeah and you know, scale supply of the green or the low carbon while reducing and decommissioning the dirty, that's an orderly transition within the control of the company, of course, and the shareholder. Exactly. Now, I think what this articulates very well is for us as investors, not only is this obviously the, probably the most important thing for us to get right, mm but we need to have the right guidance, the right toolkit to do so. And I think to date, I mean, I think the last sort of 12 months, we've seen loads of different guidance coming out on, you know, various topics. But this specific topic, guiding investors into credible transition plans, companies with um, great transition potential, that has lacked. Yes. 91 participated in the Sustainable Markets Initiative Asset Owner Asset Manager Task Force, and we helped to develop um, a framework that does just this. So effectively is a usable framework that can guide an investor towards a company that is transitioning in a credible way. Why is a tool like this so important? And how, if adopted at scale, could this create sort of meaningful change?
0: Um I think the first thing is to would be to echo a point I made earlier about avoiding if you like open season mm. carte blanche to to go and own any or all of these companies or industries or regions. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the first thing. Um the second thing is that we've from the surveys that we've run uh, most recently our planetary pulse survey in October November of last year we extracted a very very strong signal from the asset owner and consultant community that basically transition finance was something that they considered to be of the highest importance mm-hmm. something that they wanted to build capability and skill sets around but that at the moment didn't feel that they had adequate understanding and and, and a broader round, capacity yeah. and knowledge to do that mm. and one of the intentions of the fantastic SMI work mm. was to create a a standard, mm. if you like, and, and 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 a methodology and a framework which would help and guide investors and asset owners uh, to, to to do this. And where I think it's such a great bit of work is that it it's incentivizing investment and allocation in exactly the areas that need it most. Mm -hmm. But it retains a level of latitude and almost inherent subjectivity. Because at the end of the day, if you are analyzing a corporate transition plan, you've got to make a judgment about whether a company can or can't do what it's aspiring to do. Because I think what we've all seen over the last 10 years is a proliferation of target setting and commitments and promises and all of these great things, but 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 actually, the the real nitty gritty is in trying to figure out if a given company or issuer or uh, whoever it might be is is going to make it
1: within that framework. And I think one of the what, what kind of differentiates it and makes it probably more easy to use is that the framework was developed by investors for investors. Mm. So whereas a lot of you know other frameworks get developed by technical experts and yeah. then implemented by investors this was developed by investors and has now been handed over to technical experts to put what we are calling guardrails around what each of these transition investment categories should be yeah and those guardrails are very much informed by transition plans or will be dictated to by just transition plans and you've mentioned transition plans a number of times as Mm. a sort of you know, it's a key informant for a shareholder, you're investing in a company, it's in a high emitting sector. How do you know that company has has taken the risks and opportunities of climate change seriously? Mm -hmm. The transition plan. Now, transition plans can be called climate plans, they are called sustainability plans, they're all sorts of things. But effectively, what are we looking for in a transition plan? What are the critical indicators that we look for? And perhaps once we've discussed that, we can look at an example of a company with a strong transition plan.
0: So um, transition plans come in many shapes and sizes. And I would say, and I know you would agree with this, that with every passing year, the level of complexity and granularity in these transition plans, um, particularly in a sector like oil and gas, Mm. is only increasing however there there are three or four key things that we look for in the transition plan assessment uh, that that um, we've developed internally. Mm-hmm. um The first one is the ambition and the targets that are being set so at a at a starting point, is this company looking to do enough? Is this sufficiently far reaching and quick enough and ambitious enough at an overall level? to get to where it needs to. There's another component around financing and feasibility, Mm -hmm. because I think one of the things that we've all seen is companies coming out with very, very laudable, aspirational, exciting sounding plans. But as a potential investor in the company, you can be left scratching your head thinking, how on earth are they gonna do this? How are they gonna afford it? Is the cash flow gonna come from an existing business and then be recycled into a new business? Is the technology to do this uh, economically viable? Mm -hmm. And those sorts of things. So that's another key thing that we look for. Um, We look for progress. Um, So on a year by year or or sort of triennial basis, is the company actually hitting those-
1: Those targets.
0: Those targets and in a financially sustainable way. Yeah. Um, so those are some of the main things that we look for. And I think I'm right in saying, um, and I'm looking to you a bit for this as one of the key architects of the TPA, yeah. but we have something like 50 to 55 individual line items that yeah. when we're going through and populating and really getting into the detail on a transition plan that we look to um, we look to satisfy.
1: Why is more money not flowing into these regions and into the thematic of transition?
0: I think there's a number of different things. Um, The first thing I would call out is, or or reference in the context of this, is the industry standard, uh, which to some degree has been regulator-driven around reducing portfolio-level emissions. So in some cases, linear, emissions reduction targets and if that is the standard to which you are held as an asset owner for example or an investment manager then by allocating to a heavy emitting sector even to a company with a great transition plan or to a geography a country or a region which has got a higher level of emissions than parts of the developing world then immediately your ability to meet that decarbonization target is severely compromised so that's really the first point and by far the most important i would say the extension of that point is the focus to some degree the fixation on backward looking emissions data and again if you're if you look at a company or a country and your your first call, if you like, is does it have a lot of emissions and has it historically been a big emitter, then that really doesn't tell you anything about the transition plan. It just tells you that it's either in an emerging market or it's probably in one of the big five economic areas we've talked about. So we would implore people to move away from this kind of retrospective focus and and be more forward-looking because the transition is happening it's dynamic it's future facing it's forward looking it's it you know getting getting bogged down if you like in the historic data and detail isn't necessarily helpful the third point and final point i would make is just around returns and in many ways the decade from 2011 call it to 2021 for convenience sake in terms of sector performance between heavy emitting sectors and asset light, uh, low carbon sectors has, has, has been, you know, a, a decade of extraordinary outperformance of the latter, of asset light, low carbon sectors versus uh, uh, emissions intensive areas. So in a sense, it has been, that that has, you know, has, it's been the perfect storm. Mm. The, these, these areas, these parts of the market have performed really, really badly so it was just yet another reason to exclude them to say we're not going to go there they've got an emissions problem they're performing poorly we want to be over here instead but but that i would argue and we've seen it for the last couple of years that that is changing very fast and 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 so to your earlier point about the return opportunity and impact versus return and is there a sort of return story here you know what i failed to mention in that was was actually there's there's arguably a tremendous catch-up opportunity because not only are you starting with areas of the market that are on very depressed valuations but you're you're starting with areas of the market that have chronically outperformed looking back over a decade. Now they may have caught up a bit in the last 2 years but we would argue there's there's quite a lot still to play for.
1: To be clear on transition finance, this is not just for environmental impact or decarbonization. There is a a strong return element that underpins this.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the way I think about it, and it's a simplification, but to to the earlier discussion we had about where, if you like, sustainable or ESG investing up until this point has directed capital versus marginalized capital. If you were to say that the orthodoxy so far has been to direct capital to asset light, low carbon areas, mm-hmm. then it's, it's, it's only natural to sort of infer from that that heavy industries, heavy asset, smokestack sectors like the big five that we've talked about have, have seen reduced access to capital, um, higher cost of capital, higher discount rates, and lower market ratings. That's not to say that low-carbon is expensive and heavy-emitting sectors are cheap. But we're seeing, we're seeing some mismatches, if you like. Um, there's very high growth over here, long-term sustainability. These industries look structurally challenged. But to your point about return expectations, the starting point here in terms of heavy-emitting sectors and also EM versus DM is a huge discount. And we can debate the legitimacy of that discount and how wide it should be and how long it might last. But if I look, for example, at the listed oil and gas sector and look at the big uh, oil and gas super majors, uh, particularly those here in Europe, uh, we're able to buy those companies today on price-earnings ratios of around five times with enormous free cash flow yields, very clean balance sheets, etc., etc., And as a starting point, which after all is is inherent to any uh, investment success or failure as a starting point, that's very attractive.
1: You mentioned EM and DM. Mm. How do we think about the transition in emerging markets and why is this super important for those regions? Mm.
0: Well, I, I don't know that I'll do this subject justice because yeah. it's an enormously it's complex. complex and far reaching and wide-ranging one at an emissions level if we simply look at where emissions are today and where the stock of emissions is likely to come from over the next 30 years it's it's an em one
1: it's a 90 percent growth i think that's the number isn't it it's
0: terrifying yeah and and it's very pronounced in the five areas power buildings mobility industry agriculture the big five areas that we've talked about Mm -hmm. so to to, you know, to look at it in its in its kind of most simple form, that's where the emissions growth is going to come from. So regardless of considerations around socioeconomic uh, conditions, around climate justice, around all the, all this stuff, d- uh, demographics, that's where the emissions are going to come from, and and that's where we've got to solve the problem.
1: Any final thoughts on on transition transition finance? What it means for us? What it means for you? Yes.
0: Well. Um, I think there is an opportunity here or a possibility here that we will look back in 5, 10, 15 years time and say my goodness it now seems so obvious that we had to focus on the problem areas and that avoiding them by virtue of exclusions or or tilting allocations etc that that was never going to work. I think that's a very real possibility the other thing i would say and we felt the same way about the decarbonization and climate solutions opportunity through the middle and second half of the last decade when faced with a certain amount of resistance along the lines of this is complicated it's volatile can we do this in public markets etc etc this feels like a common sense moment for capital markets and 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 investors um, particularly very sophisticated investors have a tendency to want to to backtest, to run regression analysis, to understand what certain allocations will do to their overall portfolio makeup and the characteristics thereof. And w- what I would love to see happen is for, because of the urgency around this, is for us to just get on and do it and not wheel spin and worry too much about the minutiae, because as I say, I think it's a common sense moment and, and we can't really delay too much longer.
1: Great, Tom, thank you so much. Lots to digest there and, and lots to
0: take away. Thank you, Annika. It's been great talking. This podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider.